We are in the book of 1 Samuel these weeks and months. And last week, we followed David as he went on the run from Saul. You may remember David has been anointed as God's king. He was anointed as quite a young boy, actually. David has grown up a bit. He's a bit older, but he doesn't yet have the throne. In fact, David is a homeless king. He's moving from place to place. But last week, we saw God providing for his king. The priest Ahimelech gave David consecrated bread. He gave David a special sword, the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And then we saw David try to hide in the Philistine city of Gath. Now, that was not the best idea David ever had. But amazingly... After he was captured, and when David pretended to be insane, the Philistine king fell for it. He sent David away instead of killing him. And David ended up living in a cave in the wilderness. And while he's there, the misfits and the vagabonds from all across Israel come and join David in the cave. We were told last week these people gathered around David and he became their commander. These are not what you would call crack troops. In terms of the raw material David has to work with, this is not the SAS. It's more like Dad's army. But still, David is God's anointed one. In Hebrew, the word is Messiah. In Greek, the word is Christ. David is God's Christ. So at this point in Israel's history, we have two kingdoms coexisting in the same place. The kingdom of God's Christ and the kingdom of the one who opposes God's Christ. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Antichrist. Antichrist means one who opposes the Christ. One who is anti the Christ. At this point in time, Saul is the Antichrist. He is opposing God's anointed one. And for a time, these two kingdoms are existing side by side. Once you and I see that, we realize we are being given insight here into greater realities. 1 Samuel is not only teaching us about a troubled period in the history of Israel. We're getting an advanced understanding here of a kingdom that will begin 1,000 years after David, the kingdom of Jesus the Christ, and the kingdom of Antichrist that continues to oppose God's Christ. With that in mind, then, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22. In the Church Bible, it's page 294. and the large print, page 452. We're going to pick up at chapter 22, verse 6. And we'll read through to the end of chapter 22. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered... And Saul was seated, spear in hand, 
under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. He said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me, as he does today. But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitab at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, and all the men of his family, who were the priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitab. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me, as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David? the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household. Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day... When Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. This is God's word. These verses give us an inside look at the kingdom of Antichrist. And the first thing they show us is the reality behind the show. To get the effect of this, we have to remember how chapter 22 started. It started before we picked up in verse 6 with David in a cave in the wilderness. And coming out to join him in the wilderness are what commentators have called the losers and the downtrodden. 
those who've been living on the ragged edge of society. And now what we read in verse 6 gives us quite a different picture. We're told in verse 6, Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. This is a picture of a king in control, a king who is at ease. Now granted, it's not what we think of today when we think of kingly power. We think of castles or palaces or presidential jets. But in the ancient world, the idealized picture of a successful, secure king was a man sitting at his ease, outside, surveying his territory, under the cover of a sacred tree, surrounded by his counselors. In other words, at this time in history, the picture, the standard idea of a successful king is exactly the picture we find here. The tamarisk was a sacred tree, symbolizing blessing. And here is Saul, shaded by his sacred tree, not having to hide away from his enemies. Saul has a firm grip on power. That's symbolized by the spear in his hand. He's secure. He is at ease with his organization around him. Here's a king who's on top of things. He's ruling with authority and security. Contrast that picture with what we've just seen of David. Begging at the priest's house for food and for a weapon. Pretending to be mad so he'll get out of jail. Hiding in a cave surrounded by the dregs of society. Which king would you rather be with? Now, you know the answer is David. But judging by appearances, who would you rather be with? Which kingdom would get your vote here? There's no contest. Saul is the man. He's got it all together. That's the picture. But it is all a sham. It's a show. Saul knows what success looks like, and he makes sure he looks like it. But it's not reality. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 7. We've seen the picture, and it looks perfect. But now listen to what the microphone is picking up from Saul. Listen, man of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. Behind the appearance of control and security, the reality is very, very different. The reality here is suspicion and paranoia. Verse 6 told us Saul is surrounded by his officials. And in verse 7, he calls those officials men of Benjamin. 
We might wonder, well, so what? The so what is that Saul himself is from the tribe of Benjamin. What we discover here is that since Saul became king, he's been surrounding himself with his cronies. His top government jobs have all gone to men from his own tribe. That's a tactic to make himself secure. And yet, he's not even able to trust these guys. His hand-picked men. He believes they're all in a conspiracy against him. But there is absolutely no evidence for that. These guys are loyal. But because Saul's consuming passion is to hold on to power, he's a mess of suspicions and fears. Notice he can't bear to say David's name anymore. He calls him the son of Jesse. And since Saul himself is motivated by greed and power, he assumes everyone around him is just the same. He assumes they're all being tempted to go and join David. And notice how he tries to keep them. He says to them, basically, you'll all lose out if he becomes king. No more favors. No more jobs on the basis of who you know or where you were born. You've just got too much to lose if you turn away from me. And even though David's on the run because Saul tried to kill him, Saul paints it as if David's the one trying to ambush and kill Saul. He says David is lying in wait for him. And he claims Jonathan, Saul's son, put him up to it. So behind the idyllic picture of power and control, here's a king who can trust no one. His life is a constant fight to get one over on everybody else before they get one over on him. That's what it's like in the kingdom of Antichrist. Fast forward just for a moment to the beginning of the New Testament. The king there is Herod, and he hears about a new king born in Israel. Now bear in mind, Herod is a grown man in a palace, and this new king is a baby in a stable. But Herod orders the killing of all the boys to and under in the whole vicinity of Bethlehem. It's always the same in the kingdom of Antichrist. Behind the veneer of ease and power and security, there's paranoia. Fear that what you have is under threat. It doesn't matter whether it's governments or celebrities or sports stars. As we look on from a distance, we see people who have it all. But time after time, when the curtain is pulled back on their lives, the reality is fear and distrust and suspicion. No one can really be trusted because they might steal your position or your contract or your fans or your hot girlfriend or boyfriend. 
Now you might be saying, I thought we were dealing with Antichrist. So why are you talking about politicians and celebrities? You can't call them Antichrist. But look at the situation here in Israel. Is everyone in Saul's kingdom trying to hunt David down? Are they all obsessing about killing David? No. It's only Saul who's like that. There are plenty of other reasons that people would stay with Saul and not go to join David. Comfort is one. Saul promises a more comfortable life for them. I'm sure plenty of the people in Israel don't have a conscious hatred of David. But that's beside the point. The crucial point is they have chosen to stay with Saul. And so they're part of Saul's Antichrist kingdom. And equally, not many people today would be so blunt as to say, I hate Jesus Christ. But they won't join him. And so they are part of the kingdom that opposes him. Jesus said, whoever is not for me is against me. And when we choose not to join God's king, then we're part of a kingdom that looks good on the outside. It does. It has an attractive veneer. But inside, it's full of suspicion and betrayal. Just read the tabloids. Actually, don't read them, but they make their money by telling us who's cheating on who. And they have an endless supply of cheaters and betrayers to choose from. Stephen Covey was a popular figure in the world of business leadership. He died not so long ago, but in one of his books, he told the story of a man who came up to him at a conference. The man said, I don't know what to do. Every time I go away on business, my wife gets suspicious. She's always worried that I'm cheating on her and it's driving me crazy. So Stephen Covey asked him, is she your first wife? And the man said, no, I've been married before. So Covey asked him, where did you meet your current wife? And the businessman said, at a conference like this, while I was still married to my first wife. Stephen Covey said to the man, and you're surprised that she gets suspicious of you? She has every reason to be suspicious. It looks like fun on the outside, the kingdom that rejects Christ. Live how you want. Live to get what you want. It looks like fun from a distance. But on the inside, it is rotten with suspicion and betrayal. And betrayal is so common, there's suspicion even when there is no betrayal. Now, of course, that is not to say there are no friends in the kingdom of Antichrist. Because Saul has a friend. Look at verse 9. But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitab at Nob, 
Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. If we look back to chapter 21, we'll see the background to this. When David was at Nob asking Ahimelech for bread and a sword, we were told this in chapter 21, verse 7. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. That little detail didn't seem to have any significance at the time. But now we know why it was there. It's hard to know what it means that Doeg was detained before the Lord. My guess is that this interest in the Lord is a career move for Doeg. It's clear that he's committed to climbing as high as he can in Saul's court. He's not from Israel, he's from Edom. But he's trying to work his way up the ladder in Israel. And so he's making sure that he's seen to be an upstanding religious kind of guy. Now, I know in our society that would probably count against you. But in many parts of the world, it is still expected that if you want to climb in society, you'd better at least tip your hat to religion. I think that's what Doeg is up to. It's a career move. He's already Saul's chief shepherd. And he's looking for a chance to rise higher. And here is his chance. He's now in the possession of some juicy information. And he trades in that information in the hope of promotion. In Psalm 52, David writes that Doeg grew strong by destroying others. That's how it goes in the kingdom of Antichrist. And now it gets horrible. The next verses show us the power of hatred. We're told that Saul calls Ahimelech and the other priests from Nob. He accuses them of being part of this grand conspiracy against him, even though the conspiracy is all in Saul's imagination. And listen to how Ahimelech responds. He says, I don't know anything about a conspiracy, but I know David is not at fault. Verse 14, Ahimelech answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? The first time we met Ahimelech, when David showed up at Nob, we were told the priest trembled to see him. He was fearful about getting involved with David, but he has changed. He knows Saul is angry. And while Ahimelech denies any kind of conspiracy against Saul, he decides here to identify himself as a supporter of David. And that allegiance to David gets Ahimelech killed. Verse 16. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. 
The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. The expression, wear the linen ephod, is a way of talking about priests. That was their uniform in the Old Testament. Saul cannot get his hands on David. But the priests have shown allegiance to David. So Saul will pour out his anger on them. And notice this injustice from Saul is so great that even his officials know this is way out of order. They refuse to carry out Saul's command. But they don't stop Doeg from doing it. They won't get their own hands dirty. But they won't go as far as trying to save the priests. They might not be willing to pick up their swords and do the deed, but they're still with Saul. That's how it is in the kingdom of Antichrist. Of course, not everyone is a vicious killer hunting down Christians. Of course, not everyone is trying to crush God's people. But when the choice is between standing against injustice and saving their own skin, when those are the stakes, then those who refuse to side with Christ will turn a blind eye to injustice. They will let the followers of the Christ suffer. Does that seem melodramatic? Maybe it does here in the middle of England in 2014. But if you lived in North Korea, it would make perfect sense. Regimes like that can only exist because the vast majority of people turn a blind eye to what goes on. Not everyone is taking children away from Christian parents. But a lot of people are standing by and letting it happen. Not everyone in Sri Lanka is attacking Christian churches. But they're prepared to watch while it happens. The Bible tells us that yes, there will be one final Antichrist with a capital A. One final Antichrist who opposes God's people. But human history is filled with many Antichrists, small a. Figures who rise to power and try to crush God's people because they're God's people. Here in Israel, those who side with David are the target. Since Jesus came, it's those who side with him. And the reality is, time and time again, God's people come incredibly close to being utterly crushed, extinguished. So yes, the picture we saw of Saul as a secure, serene ruler, that was an illusion. We've seen he's a mass of suspicion and paranoia. 
We've seen there is no true security in the kingdom of Antichrist. And at the same time, it is equally true that kingdom can inflict massive damage. There is no miraculous escape for the people of Nob. No angels come to turn Doeg and his men away. And only one priest gets out of this alive. Eighty-five priests and their families die. It would seem that the statistics are on the side of Antichrist here. Hatred is powerful. It's making powerful headway in parts of the world today. Look at the Open Doors website or the Barnabas Fund website. Christians in Syria are being crushed. And in plenty of other places. We prayed about some of them earlier. Vietnam, Sri Lanka. Sometimes we talk about the persecuted church as if persecution always makes the church grow. But actually, the most severe persecution can come very, very close to wiping the church out. That was the case in Albania just a few decades ago. Persecution almost completely destroyed the church in Albania. When the first missionaries got back in, there was almost nothing left of the church. The book of Revelation talks about Antichrist waging war against God's holy people and conquering them. Yes, it really says that in Revelation 13. But Revelation 13 also says there is a limit to this conquering of God's people. The Apostle Paul spoke of his own experience of being struck down but not destroyed. And sometimes that's the reality for God's people as a whole. We see it here. 85 of the Lord's priests are killed. But not all of the Lord's priests are killed. Abiathar escapes. And as he reflects on this verse... A writer called Dale Ralph Davis says this, The Lord does not promise that we will never die for the kingdom of God, but that the kingdom of God will never die. Here in Israel, this is as close as it gets. The Bible is always realistic. Hatred is powerful. There will be times and places where the kingdom of Antichrist almost crushes Christ's kingdom. But it never will crush Christ's kingdom. Abiathar not only escapes, but he is soon safe with the true king. Look at verse 20. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, 
that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. It's not clear what exactly David feels guilty for here. It may be because he didn't tell Ahimelech about the trouble between him and Saul. It may be that he didn't warn Ahimelech about Doeg when he spotted him there. Or it may be that he didn't kill Doeg that day. But look what David goes on to say in verse 23. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. We might wonder how exactly that's supposed to be comforting. Don't worry, you've come to the right place. Saul's trying to kill me too. How can David say, don't be afraid, you'll be safe with me? At this point, David's kingdom consists of a cave, or maybe a few caves, and a bunch of outcasts. David really only has one thing. He has a promise from God. One day you will rule unchallenged. One day, David, every knee in Israel will bow to you. That's it. David's confidence hangs on a promise. And he's asking Abiathar to put his trust in that same promise. That might not seem like a lot. But remember, this is God's kingdom. This is a different world from the kingdom of Antichrist. In that kingdom, promises are so often empty. In that kingdom, who can you really trust? But this is God's kingdom. And his promises never fail. Back in chapter 15, the prophet Samuel said, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. Psalm 33 says, The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. David has a promise from that God. So he stands in the cave, surrounded by his motley crew, and he says to Abiathar, Don't be afraid. You're safe with me. One day I'm going to be king of this whole land. I have God's word on that. God has not promised that the kingdom of his Christ is going to progress in a constant victory march. Time after time it will look like God's kingdom is about to be snuffed out. But the book of Revelation tells us that one day there will be an announcement in heaven. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And so the question for us is, for all of us, whose promises are we going to trust? Are we going to try to make our way in the kingdom of Antichrist? 
That's the kingdom that will look most secure most of the time. Are we going to put our trust there? Or are we going to trust God's promise? God's promise that however weak his kingdom may seem, however much it looks like a lost cause, one day every enemy will be under the feet of King Jesus. That's God's promise. And if we do trust God's promise, then we will be willing to stand up and be counted for God's king. Martin Luther was a man who knew all about being in the minority. And whenever he thought of the enemies that he faced, Luther didn't deny that they were big and powerful enemies. But he trusted God's promise. And he was able to say, theirs is a short-lived day. Ours is the lasting kingdom. We're going to respond to God's word with a song by Martin Luther. Our God stands like a fortress rock.